0: Well, good morning to you, Uh, and greetings to you from Heritage Bible Church in Greer, South Carolina, just outside of Greenville. They have received us so well in this last year, and they receive the Word so well, just like you all. So thanks for praying for us. So happy to be here. We miss you. We miss you very much. You're a treasure to us. It's been a treat to be here at this conference over the weekend, and certainly here on Sunday, And to be with Ryan and Dr. Wellum, I have a Bible for my years in seminary, and I have a Bible for my years here. I'm using that, each of them are marked up with notes from each of these men. It truly is the case that, as a Timothy, these are my Pauls, and it has been a pleasure to lead and partner with them in serving you. And it's been a pleasure to sing with you this weekend. Many thanks to Asher and the team, too many to name, who put the conference on. It has been such a joy, and you've taken such good care of all of us. Thank you. Please open with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation. Always a good time. We'll be in chapter 21. We'll read in a moment from verses one through eight. And I'll set it up here a bit. The world cries out for resolution, does it not? A resolution to the tension in the world's story and in our individual stories. On the streets of Charlottesville and the halls of Kim Jong-un's government, there are untold manifestations of alienation, rebellion, and competing visions for a resolution to all this dissonance that we want. Every human being feels it and reaches in a thousand directions for an answer, and even all the different directions we reach for an answer is itself a manifestation of our great problem but we all long for a better day do we not and when we get up each Lord's Day brothers and sisters here in Albuquerque and when I get up with my family in the congregation there in Greer at Heritage Bible Church and we come to church we are saying something very specific about how this world's problems and longings and tensions and how our longings and problems find an answer We are not saying by coming to church on Sunday that there is hope in us. We are saying that there is great hope for us. We've been making our way through the Bible's story and now we come to the end. Or better, a new beginning. The book of Revelation, a book by the Apostle John to seven first century churches. Very different churches. But churches each with the same Savior. Churches, each with the same mission, they're addressed as Jesus' stands at the beginning of the book of Revelation. They are his lights in the world, and each with the same great hope. The sure appearing of the Lord Jesus in glory, and the new creation that he will bring. Well, this morning we witness a vision of the new heavens and the new earth. God's new creation has come in a person, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God incarnate. God's new creation has come in a people, the church, and we are the new creation in this world. And now God's new creation comes in a place where his new creation is now complete. What will it look like? The already not yet becomes the already here and now. Well, the book of Revelation is the inscripturation of a vision Jesus gave to the Apostle John. And here is what he saw. Then I saw a new heavens and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Let's pray. Father, we ask for your help. We have prayed for the Spirit to work through the word. We ask for your help now as we've heard it read, that in its preaching we would hear your voice. Help us to hear it. Help us to heed it. Help us to love you more through it. And to see your son in all his glory. As we do. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, people say the craziest things when they're on a lot of medication at the end of their life. They also say, perhaps at times, the truest things. Five years ago now, I preached a sermon right here. I addressed the problem of death. I even addressed the matter of cancer patients specifically. It was a sermon from Psalm 46. I love that psalm. David Steele, whom many of you remember and knew, a man in his 70s came forward to me afterwards, and Dave was one of these guys who would always say amen during the sermon. There were two things going on there. Dave, on the one hand, didn't have a very good sense of how loud he was. In the middle of a quiet room this size, as the preacher was preaching, he would just say amen. Now, that will happen, and I think he meant to be heard, but I know that it was partly a hearing thing because once, when the mic wasn't working for someone on the platform, he turned to his wife, Janet, and said, Sound man. And uh, we have it recorded in the audio, and we pass it between each other. It's a riot. (laughs) Sound man. Chris got nailed. But the second thing Dave had going on is a genuine and deep approval of the word of God to verbalize his affirmation of the things that he heard. Amen. Can you say amen? Amen. I wasn't surprised for Dave to approach me after the service. He was always cheering on the younger guys and specifically younger leaders. Like many of you do. But I was surprised with what he shared with me that day. He said this, I had an appointment this week. I have brain cancer and Janet doesn't know yet. He always had a big smile on his face, but this time he had a big smile and on his face a tear. So I gave him a hug and I knew he had news to deliver. What a hard day. So back to the medication. There were two things that Dave did over and over again in his last days, as was reported to me. First, Dave would fish. He would cast his sheets. He was tying jigs and doing fishing-type things, whatever fishing-type things are. Gabe Marquez over here can tell you. Follow him on Instagram. (laughs) Even reporting on trips, apparently. Wasn't that a great trip with the Lord, he would say. Amen. And The second thing Dave would do this preach. And it wasn't always clear as to what he was preaching. But from under his sheets, he would hold up his hands like this. And he would say, this is how it's going to be. This is how it's going to be. Revelation. He had heard sermons on Revelation and on the new creation. And he had read it for himself. And he had longed for the day. And in his last days, he was preaching to himself and those around him. Well, Charles Spurgeon, a 19th century preacher said, the best moment of a Christian's life is the last one because it is the one that is nearest heaven. And certainly that was true for Dave. Well, the book of Revelation helped him greatly. It does so with promises, with promises that pull us through persecution and all manner of trouble. For a church that feels weak and incomplete, each of those first century seven churches in those towns under persecution, most if not all of them, would have felt the need for this. They would have felt inadequate, but they have a complete Savior. And this is a vision of a complete and sufficient Savior who not only has done a work on the cross, but will come again. And today we're at the very end of the Bible and we peek into eternity as it will be with the Lord. Our text is Revelation 21, 1 through 8. But there's a whole section here, really, 21 through 22, that takes a closer look at some of what we see in verses one through eight. And so we'll work our way through verses one through eight as the sermon proper, but we're going to dart around these two chapters as we go. So you can just settle right there in these last two chapters, and I'll tell you where where we're at. And as we do, we will see Christ together. Well, apocalyptic literature is an all sensory experience. It's a strange genre and we need to talk about it for just a few minutes. It's strange, but what we find is that it's a form of literature perfectly suited to the kind of thing that God is getting across to us today, peering into the new creation. Maybe your child has asked you about what heaven is like. And that's a very good question. And you might say from Habakkuk 2.14, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And your child will look at you and say, I want more specifics. (laughs) What will it be like? Well, this is much of what the Bible gives to us. When the Bible does get more specific, like in Revelation, it also gets cryptic. And strange, apocalyptic literature is what the book of Revelation is made of. Everyone wants to understand the book of Revelation, and everyone's scared to death of the book of Revelation. The key is understanding how apocalyptic literature works. It is today a dead genre. Imagine poetry going out of business, and then people finding our poetry. Centuries later, thinking, what were these people doing? Or imagine the sci-fi genre goes out... And uh, thousands of years later, perhaps, even everything is so cool, they don't need to make things up anymore. And they would have to wonder, what were we thinking? What were we smoking as we imagined these wild stories? That's a dead genre. But it was a real genre, and it has certain rules. And like there are rules for how to read poetry and history and a comic... You read them differently, intuitively. There are different rules for reading apocalyptic literature. For example, apocalyptic literature was visionary literature. A person had a vision, and then they reported on what they saw from that symbolic experience. And the vision was a symbolic experience. And In Revelation, we have an abundance of examples of this. Jesus, for example, has a sword coming out of his mouth. What does that mean? It means his word cuts. And it is sure, and it is a weapon. Or the lamb on the throne, John saw that. But is Jesus an actual lamb? Like, is he a lamb? No, he's not a lamb. The lamb is a symbol that Jesus carries, of Jesus that carries certain meanings. So in these visions, you have a few layers. You have the, the visionary layer where you see the lamb. You have the reference layer. It is Jesus. Then you have the significance layer. The lamb on the throne means that Jesus, the Lord Jesus, will accomplish his rule through substitutionary atonement. Through his death as a lamb, he brings about his people and his kingdom and he exerts his rule as one who is humbled and now exalted and seated. That's the meaning of a lamb on a throne. John saw a lamb on a throne. Symbolic vision with particular particular meaning. Another rule would be watch out for the numbers. Numbers are significant and symbolic. We get greeted in the opening of the letter by God the Father, Jesus Christ, and the seven spirits. What? <laughs> the seven spirits? No. Seven is a number of completion, seven days of creation. This number comes up across the Bible. And as you're hearing it, you say, Ah, the one and only Spirit of God. So there's vision, symbols, numbers, apocalyptic literature is also lit, lit, written like a wartime speech. If you think of the greatest war movies, you'll always have some kind of it's speech intended to reorient and orient and focus the troops on what is true and real and what's really at stake in the moment. And a wartime speech gives them the capacity to do what they could not otherwise do. And so this vision, the whole book of Revelation and this vision, is intended to orient us like a wartime speech. This is where you're at. This is where things are going. This is what's at stake. Hang on. That's what the book of Revelation does. It's a little bit about apocalyptic literature. You have to get it, or you won't get, the book of Revelation. So just know you're reading a genre with particular rules, and that helps. So get your imaginations on. This will be an all-sensory experience. We'll use the senses to organize our sermon today. Let's ask four questions. What will we see? What will we hear? What will we feel? And what will we taste? First, what will we see? Verses one through two. Let's read verse one right now. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. A real physical world, not an ethereal, invisible, merely spiritual world. It's not a totally different from this world, but it is totally new and renewed. Some of you may have undertaken a renovation project on your home, or maybe you've added an addition. South Carolina has a super abundance of rain. And small creatures. My children referred to the bugs as small creatures. When we got there, they haven't been around very many bugs. At night in New Mexico, it's quiet. You can hear the cars way over there, like miles away. In South Carolina, it's the frogs terrorize the sky with their noise. And other creatures, small creatures. And I said, okay, those are bugs. In and out of your homes, in and out of their homes, I've seen patios turned into screened in patios and then turned into sunrooms. It's like a natural progression. The whole part of the house used to be a patio, screened in patio, and then we just turned it into a bigger kitchen or a bigger, a bigger family room. I hung lights on my patio recently and maxed out my vision for my patio. I stopped there. I can't get more done on my own. Well, God's renovation of the universe will be inc- not be incremental, it'll be total, it'll be incredible. It'll be perfect, and it will be immediate. The idea of a physical external state, eternal state, where does the Bible portray the future age like this? Well, lots of places. Here is one. The prophets looked back to the land promise of the Abrahamic covenant given to Abraham, and they saw in the future age a whole new creation, they knew that the God's promise of land to Abraham was like a stop on the way to, root, to getting done in the whole world what God had started in the garden. And Isaiah says this in Isaiah 65, he says, Behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create." For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy, and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people, and no more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. They shall build houses and inhabit them, they shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit, they shall not plant and then another eat. For like the days of a tree shall be the days of my people, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer, and they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf will lie down with the lamb, and they'll graze together. The lion will eat star like the ox, the dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. No more weeping. You won't build a house and then have to give it up to foreclosure or death. I think about it. So many of the reasons a house gets a new occupant are tied to sad things. No more sad things. There won't be anything painful or fruitless. The wolf and the lamb will hang out and the the lion won't eat other animals. And the serpent will be finished. No evil, no evil, no evil. And that's what he means by there's no sea. There's no sea. In Revelation 21, eight, he said, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable and murderers, the sexually immoral and sorcerers, idolaters and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. At the coming of Jesus, he brings in his glorious new creation, but he also brings judgment. For if there's going to be a new creation, sin and evil must be put away finally and fully and, and forever. And it's it's a glorious thought because we get what we're reading about now. It's a terrifying thought. I pray you're on the right side of these things. Hear this from Revelation 20, verse 11. I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. And from his presence earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them can't get away and I saw the dead great and small standing before the throne and books were opened and another book was opened, which is the book of life and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they'd done and the sea gave up the dead who were in it death and Hades gave up the dead who were in it and they were judged each one of them according to what they'd done Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Not everyone will enjoy this incredible new creation reality that we're describing today. I pray you'll find yourself on the right side of these things. Keep listening, keep listening, and you'll hear how. You can join us. That's what he means when he says there will be no sea, there will be no evil, there will be nothing bad or sad there. He's not against fishes or beaches. He's against Satan and evil. In the ancient world, water wasn't just a place for fishing. It was a place for being swallowed up by a storm or a monster. In ancient Near Eastern literature, the sea is a place of evil. The seas were treacherous, chaotic, and dark. Seas were evil and in personal experience and in the mythology of the day. But this place that God will make will be a perfect place, and a perfect place for a perfect people. Verse 2 Look, and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. God's people. John mixes his images here. Here's what he sees. He sees a holy city, he says, a new Jerusalem, and it's coming down out of heaven to earth, and it's prepared as a bride adorned for his people. Prepared as a bride. I'm like, John, can you sketch this out for me? Draw a picture. Jerusalem was a place, it was also people. Jerusalem, the city of God's king, home to the temple where God met with his people. The city was the center of God's work in the world under the old covenant, but a shadow of what was to come. And under the new covenant, the writer of Hebrews says, you have come to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festal gatherings. This is God's one final assembly, his church, his radiant bride, his new Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And John sees her, the people, there. What must this city look like? What must this bride look like? John actually gives us a bit of a close-up and he shares it with us. Look down at verse 9 through 21 in chapter 21. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I'm gonna show you the bride the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and at the gates 12 angels and on the gates the names of the 12 tribes and the sons of Israel were inscribed. And on the last three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod out of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. And the city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with its rod 12,000 stadia, its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits, by human measurement, <clears throat> which is also an angel's measurement. I'm not going to explain that. Uh, the wall was built with jasper, which, which the city was made of pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, and the fourth emerald, and the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, and the seventh crystallite the eighth barrel, the ninth topaz, the tenth, the eleventh, sorry, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. Let's take a look at the bride. <clears throat> Is this, Are these her measurements? Is this what you expected to see? What is this all about? When the kid asks, what's heaven going to be like? And you get that out. What are you going to say? Well, you don't know, unless you get an explanation. It's a vision. It's full of symbols. In what sense will Christ's bride look like this? And why do we need these blueprints? Well, first look at the numbers. 12,000 is 12 times 1,000. 144 is 12 times 12. Multiples of, multiples of 12. And in the Bible... Twelve goes along with the people of God. Hugely important. first chapter, Holy Spirit was referenced with the number seven, and the twelve shows up in the Bible in connection with God's people, twelve tribes, twelve apostles. Here's what it means. In the new creation, Jesus' bride, the church, is complete. Complete. No one is missing, no one is lost, not one is left behind, they are all there. Men and women from every tribe and language and tongue and nation. Those he's gathering in North Africa, in Guatemala, on the reservation through your work. No racial tension, no class strife, no international conflict. A world of perfect resolution, a complete picture of a complete people. That's what the numbers 12 mean. And you know what? A symbolic vision to get that point across is a whole lot better than answering what's heaven like. All the people will be there. No, give me a tour of a city with these measurements and I get the point if you know how to read it. Not only is she complete, this people is also pure. Did you notice that all sides of the wall are equal? They're all exactly equal and that point is specifically made. It's length, it's width, it's height. There's one other thing in the Bible that's a perfect square, and that's the Holy of Holies. That place where no man or woman could go without dying for sin and God's holiness do not mix. But one high priest could go in there once a year and by certain requirements and with sacrifices for his sins and to cleanse the place and all of this. That Holy of Holies being, oh, just an insufficient step back to Eden. But here, the new creation is uninhibited access to God all the time. One sacrifice has been made. It's a perfect square to say this is God's perfect presence. And we're all there with him. And from Eden to the land promise, to Jerusalem and the temple in Jerusalem and the Holy of Holies... God is saying to us, I'm coming to you. We're going to get back together. It's going to happen. And through Jesus' cross and resurrection and then his coming and new creation, it happens and we're with our God. She's complete. She's pure. She's also beautiful. These stones, the kinds we find in the presence of God in Eden, they're in the temple and some of them are, are here again. And they speak of the sheer beauty of the place. It's not glib. It is fit for royalty, the Lord, and you and I in glory. So John sees the new heavens and he sees this new earth and it's the most, the most beautiful part about it is the people. How encouraging for these seven churches to hear and how encouraging for us to hear, no, to see. How does it happen? What makes the church beautiful? Verse 3, our next sensory experience. What will we hear? A loud voice with good news. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. In the course of our lives, we may hear all kinds of good news. We may get the news that we've been accepted to a school or landed a certain job or that the woman or man we've been pursuing said yes, but nothing will ever, can ever top this. The dwelling place of God is with man. The dwelling place of God is with man, where God says, yes, you're accepted, you're mine, I will never leave you nor forsake you. What you did in Adam I've undone. God says, I've banished you from the garden in my presence because of sin, and now I welcome you into my presence because of my son. And John points out something that is strangely missing from the new creation, Verse 22 of Revelation 21, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. The dwelling place of God is with man, and there is no better sound to our ears. We are beautiful and radiant because we are with our Lord. And our deepest longings in life, are they not longings for people? Maybe for you it's for a spouse longing for a father or a mother on the part of a child or or a spouse who died or a longing for a child or longing for a child that has become estranged. Our souls are wired this way. Our deepest longing, whether we know to put our finger on it in this way or not, is a longing to know the triune God. Jonathan Edwards said this, the enjoyment of God is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. To go to heaven fully to, to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. Fathers and mothers, husbands, wives, or children of the company of earthly friends are shadows, but God is the substance. These are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the ocean. He is better than the best companion or spouse, my friends. He's safer than the best father. And this is the marriage you've always dreamed of. And his is the church you've always dreamed of, but better. A day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere, the psalmist tells us. Oh, and it is, and we'll know it. In the new heavens and new earth, we will know days without end, and all those days will get better and better forever, as our capacity to enjoy the presence of God will get greater and greater. My son got some glasses this past year. Christy was at the mailbox. Carson got out of the car. Mom, I can see your face, he says. Like, so she's a little far away. I can see your face. Like, oh, he really did need glasses. (laughs) My wife remembers when as a child she got her first pair of glasses and she could see the shapes of the leaves on the trees. You know, we don't even know what we got coming. For now we see in a mirror dimly but then face to face now I know in part and then I will know fully even as I have become fully known beloved we are God's children now scripture says and what we will be has not yet appeared but we know that when he appears we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is part of being a Christian is just hanging on and believing what the Bible says even when you can't imagine it when well, you can't imagine it and praise God we can't imagine the best of what's to come we're so used to this you know Keep showing up. When the day comes, there will be no mousy voice saying the dwelling place of God is with man. There will be a loud voice. The dwelling place of God is with man. It's here. This is how it's going to sound. Well, how will it feel? We'll feel something infinitely strong and at the same time infinitely gentle on our cheeks. Verse 4, this is how it'll feel. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. And neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. We will feel the end of our pain and the touch of his finger on our cheek. Your physical pain and the worst kinds. Your emotional pain and depression and loneliness. And your fear of death and loss. And whatever makes you cry, brother or sister... It'll be gone. The former things are gone, and the new has come. And in this vision, John gives us of the new creation. There's a familiar symbol that we can't miss, and it's the tree of life. It was in Eden. Look at Revelation 22, verses 1 through 5. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more and they will need no lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. There was a river in the garden where God made the world in Eden. There was a river and a vision of the future New Jerusalem with a tree for the healing of humanity right here. And the prophets in the Old Testament, in Ezekiel, there is a, a vision like this, an apocalyptic vision of a future temple that's like a new creation and from the temple flows a river for healing of the nations, renewal of the whole world. And there's trees there. Here it is. Here it is. Here in the new creation, we see that river and that tree, and we will see him face to face. We will bear his name. He will be our light, and there will be no end of this, and he'll heal us all. Does it get better? Nope. Jonathan Edwards again. The blessedness of heaven is so glorious that when the saints arrive there, they will look back upon the earthly pilgrimage, however wonderful their life in Christ was then as a veritable hell. And just as truly, on the other hand, those who perish in hell look back on life in this world, however miserable it may have been, as a veritable heaven. It's going to be so good. This is how it's going to feel. How will it taste? Well, verse 5 and 6 of chapter 1. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. And also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. To the thirsty, he will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. And to a famished crowd, Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me will never thirst to God's thirsty people, he had said the same thing through the prophets. Springs will well up in the desert. That's where your name comes from, Desert Springs Church. In John four fourteen: whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. Jesus satisfies. And when I read that Jesus says these things, sometimes I wonder if I'm just pretending it's true. I believe it, but is it actually true? Yes, it is true. We are parched at times. On this earth, we may not always feel like Jesus is enough, and you may not feel right now like Jesus is enough. In this age, we're often parched and tired, physically and spiritually, yet in the age to come, friends, Jesus tells us that he will satisfy us entirely, and there will be no inhibition to our satisfaction. There will be no competition in our spirit. There will be no competition of affection for Jesus, We'll be utterly satisfied in him for we will be fully with him. Now here's the million dollar question. Who gets in on this? Who gets in on this? Verses seven through eight, we'll look at it in a moment. I mean, how much must this cost? How wealthy and accomplished a human being must you be to get all of this? It costs a lot to live in the world's big cities. Um... This is going to be a big city. And we know it's exclusive. It's the New Jerusalem, and this is the Lord. That's, that's some pretty awesome access, amenities. And in case you missed it, verse six it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, and the beginning and the end. And to the thirsty, I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. It's free no payment due on arrival. But that's not because there was no payment. Revelation 19, 9, blessed are those who were invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. There's that image again. Revelation 21, and I saw no temple in the city for its temple is the Lord God and the, the Almighty and the, the Lamb. And the city's got no need for sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the, it's the Lamb. In verse twenty-seven, nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written, whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. The marriage supper, a city without a sun, a book of life, and the one thing each of these have in common is a Lamb. Eternity goes in two directions, depending on one's relationship to a lamb, the lamb who is slain. You were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you've made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. The lamb is God's answer to the impossible otherwise question, how can sinners be made right with a holy God? Adam and his race was booted from the garden because God is just and holy and it doesn't work that he can accept sinners into his presence but he keeps his justice and he takes us in because the eternal son of God took on human flesh and obeyed to a cross and took our sins all away. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and on that day they may enter the city gates. Wash their robes in the blood of the lamb who come to Christ for salvation and entrust him wholly who say, this lamb is the only answer for my problem and entrust themselves to him. And so you must And so you must. I pray you come to him. So if you have not banked your eternity on the lamb, bank your eternity on the lamb, Jesus Christ who was slain for sinners. And as you have banked your eternity on the lamb, keep banking your eternity on the lamb. To the one who conquers will have this inheritance. Revelation tells us over and over again, those who have entrusted themselves wholly to Christ, keep hanging on, keep hanging on. And that's part of what this vision in the book of Revelation is to empower you by the Spirit to do. I want to end where Jesus did. i will reading a few verses from the very back end of the chapter 22. Verses 16 through 17. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. What does Jesus say as the book of the Bible is winding down? I am the root And the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. As sure as God's promises to David and all that that meant is as sure as Jesus is coming. He says in verse 12, Behold, I'm coming soon. And then verse 13, I am the Alpha and the Omega and the First and the Last. And Yahweh, the Lord, the Father, on his lips in chapter 121 and said he's the beginning and the end. And now here Jesus says he's the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And in verse 20, surely I'm coming soon. Amen, come Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we come to you in prayer through a lamb A lamb slain, we're heard by you because of what he did in obeying to the cross, in dying for our sins and in taking them away so that we can be heard by you, so that we can pray to you as your people, so that we can pray to you with this great, wonderful, really unimaginable, but imaginable hope. Father, I pray that you would strengthen the church in this city, Albuquerque, for this great hope. I pray that this church, Desert Springs Church, and those churches that have partnered with us over this weekend would be strengthened by your word with a vision of Jesus and all of his great glory, including his glorious appearing to come. And when we see him face to face, may we be transformed into his likeness. Do this, Father, for us in Christ's name we pray. Amen.